It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and on this week's episode, I'm talking with Jake Dell, the man who runs Katz's Delicatessen in New York City. For those unfamiliar, Katz's is arguably the most famous Jewish deli in the world. It's been running since 1888. It's where they shot the iconic I'll Have What She's Having Seen in When Harry Met Sally, and many would say it serves the single best pastrami sandwich you can buy. I met Jake, whose family has owned the deli for several generations now, a few years back when I interviewed him for a Slate article, and I thought it would be fun to bring him on the show to just talk about how his week runs. Enjoy. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Jake Dell, and I'm the fifth generation owner at Katz's Delicatessen. And how long has Katz's been in your family specifically? Well, we've been around for 130 years, and I'm the fifth generation, so uh, fifth overall, but third in my family. So my grandfather did it for many years. He was a partner with the original Katz family, and my father, my uncle, my mother, my aunt were involved as well. Now it's my turn, hopefully not to screw it up. Yeah, you don't want to mess up the franchise. No, no, no. That would be bad. So, And when did you take over? I started full-time. In 2009, but realistically, I started in the womb, and soon after, they, they were like, you know, you, you took nine months off. What, what, have you, what have you been doing? Get back to work, kid, you know? Um, so it's in my blood. I, I mean, this is what I do. It's like literally they're feeding you the pastrami in utero. That was training. They're like, this is the spice mix. Yeah, this exactly. Is, you got to exactly. get the smoking just right. Yeah, what tastes wrong here, kid? <laughs> like, <laughs> knock twice if it's right. I'm curious when your work week starts. Because Katz's doesn't even really seem to stop. It seems like it's sort of constantly moving. I mean, how many hours a day are you guys open now? So we're 24 hours on the weekend. Yeah. Uh, and we're open from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. during the week. Okay. And just shoveling pastrami, mass quantities of meat. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, we'll go through about 30,000 pounds of meat every week. So when does that week start for you? Uh, that is a tricky question because that assumes that the prior week ended. And for me, there is no breaks. Uh, I'm I'm there... You know, I say six days a week, but the reality is there's the seventh thrown in there a lot, um, and there's overnights thrown in there, and there's, uh, you know, even when you leave, you're thinking about it. Um, when you are when you own a, a business, no matter who you are, you, that's your lifeblood. There, I mean, that's, there's no Shabbos. <laughs> there is no, this is my Shabbos right now. This yeah. is it. I, this is my break. Um, <laughs> so it's Monday morning. It's Monday morning. When are you up and what are you doing? I'm up uh, around uh, 7 a.m. and I get right to to ordering for the week, uh, see what happened over the weekend, I'm kind of taking inventory, taking stock, looking at the week ahead uh, and trying to figure out what do we need food-wise, product-wise, meat-wise, anything. How much does that actually vary from week to week? Oh, it can vary a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, based on what? Based on... <laughs> what we sold. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's based on, uh, and, and not just that, but is there a holiday coming up? Uh, you know, is there some sort of special event, a catering gig? Uh, are, are 
people off from school or kids on vacation. Um, there's any number of factors. It can be what's the weather look like in the upcoming week? You know, weather can play a weird role in, in demand. So what are you using to go through your sales and inventory? Because I think of Katz's and I think of sort of your old school ticketing system and, you know, your kind of you're, – you're kind of analog, at least at the restaurant itself. So, how, like, I assume the back end is a little bit more technologically advanced or – You would assume wrong. Really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My inventory is a pencil and a paper. I do everything by hand as my father did. I – personally get a better sense of what's happening when it's I have to write it out I have to think about it I have to see it in front of me and I have to kind of get a big picture going there are don't get me wrong certain things that are automated and technologically advanced since 1888 um, that is <laughs> there, there have been many changes over those years but at the core of it it's about do we have enough meat for the next week? And and part of that also, I mean, we're curing meats for a four-week process and we're smoking meats. And so there's always this looking ahead to the future. Right now, when I did my ordering this particular week, I'm not thinking about middle of July. I'm thinking about back to school also. Um, so I'm thinking about, you know, what 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 is our demand going to look like towards the middle and end of August? I'm trying to picture you bleary-eyed at 7 a.m. So you're trying to think about, you're trying to keep track of 33,000 pounds of, of curing and smoking meat with a, just like pencil and paper in, and that just like a bunch of tables. What do you, like, <laughs> just, you got a ledger and you're saying like, you're, it's okay that, and you're just going through a book and that's how you're tracking all this? More or less. Yeah. It's actually a clipboard. A clipboard. Um, not a full, not, we're not as fancy as a book. It's just a lot of loose pieces of paper. In fact, if you look at my pocket, I just have a lot of loose pieces of paper where I jot notes and stuff too. Uh, um, so, um, sorry, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> put that away. You know, it's – I know ballpark where we need to be. There are certain – when you say there's 33,000 pounds, it's actually a lot more because what you're ordering is 30,000 pounds and what you use is 30,000 pounds. But if it's four weeks, there's yeah. uh, meat in different stages of the process as well. So there's meats that's been partially cured and some we, – we have them in different locations and it's about labeling them and knowing that this meat that came in at this date is going to be used at this time and so on and so forth. It's in the barrels, then it's in the tanks, and, and then there's a whole process that goes along with that. You start doing inventory. Where do you, the more do you go from there? Looking at the week ahead, I actually – Monday mornings are my momentary zen of thinking about the week ahead. I write a lot of lists for myself, and so I think about what do I need to accomplish on it when other people are, are operating on a Monday to Friday schedule. I need to think about what do I need to accomplish on a Monday to Friday, even though, sure, I'm still going to work Saturday, Sunday, and we're going to be open, and we're going to serve customers, but there are certain business things that need to be done during the work week. So I try to map all that out, try to map out my week, try to decide where I'm going to be on what days. You know, we, we have a Brooklyn location and we have a, a smokehouse and a warehouse in Jersey. Uh, and, of course, the main store down on the Lower East Side. Um, so it's about sort of mapping out my week ahead. When do you get to the restaurant? I mean, it, it depends. On any day, I can be there from as early as 7, 8 in the morning, uh, you know, maybe 10 a.m. if I go to the gym first. Um, <laughs> um, if I if I have to go to the smokehouse uh, – I, I got to be there about four thirty in the morning, so it, it depends. You know, if if I'm going to do a smokehouse type of day, it's harder because I I'm I'm not necessarily going to stay through dinner. 
mm-hmm. through the dinner rush because you know then I'm home by eleven o'clock at night. So I try not to do that because I'd like to have a life, uh, or at least pretend that I do. Uh, so you know it, that's part of what I do on Mondays: map out what days am I going to be there super early uh, out in Jersey, and what days am I going to be in Brooklyn, and what days am I going to be here? And so I, I bounce around a lot. What do you do when you go to the smokehouse? What's your job there? Well, I think my, it's the same as my job anywhere, which mm. is to make sure that the people that are working for me um, are doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? And and the managers that I have there, I trust the managers that I have and I trust the staff that I have. And I, I have some amazing people w- working for me. And, and it's just a matter of making sure that things are running smooth and that everyone has what they need to get their job done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's is there enough staff? Is there enough product? Is there enough raw goods? Uh, 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 you know, uh, what payrolling, scheduling, this, I, it could be anything. It's just what issues are there and do I need to put out any fires? Are you yourself doing like any quality control, for instance, on All the meat time. itself? Yeah, so, every day. Okay. So how, tell me about that process. It starts with a look. Um, you, you can see something doesn't look right. Or maybe it looks perfect. It mm-hmm. could be the smell. And this is like the finished meat you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Although actually you do have to do quality control of everything, right? So the incoming raw meat, if it's not a good quality raw meat, it's certainly not going to be a good quality finished product. So there is this element of making sure that the raw meats are good, making sure that things are curing properly, though you don't want to taste something in the middle of the curing process. That's purely looking at it. If you were to taste that, it's disgusting. Um, Have you tried to taste that? No, that would be insane. It's uh, – I've done some stupid things in my days, but <laughs> yes. But um, I, would not, yeah. I would not recommend that, eating raw, partially cooked anything. <laughs> You're going to get a call like, hey, that guy told me to eat raw, partially cured. Mm-hmm. So you know, public service announcement, don't do that. Um, so my day – is really just a matter of making sure that other people are doing what they're doing, I guess. Oh, that's not the question we were talking about. Yeah, yeah we moved on from you that know, I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What do you sell more of, corned beef or pastrami? So right now we sell uh, about two to one pastrami to corned beef, about uh, eight or 9,000 pounds of corned beef a week, uh, and uh, anywhere from fifteen to 20,000 pounds of pastrami. But we also sell a couple thousand pounds of turkeys and a couple thousand pounds of briskets, and, and hot dogs being one of our biggest sellers, uh, it, it just weight wise isn't that much, but we'll sell about four thousand hot dogs a week. So let's let's talk about the pastrami. I want to talk about the life of the pastrami and kind of how you oversee it. I assume it starts with you actually buying the meat, right? And are you in charge of that? Are you you have meat buyers? How does that work? Yeah, so I shop around for meat. Uh, we try not to go too far. Uh, we like meat from upstate or from uh, Midwest. Uh, you know, maybe lower parts of Canada, but things sort of. Within a day or two drive, nothing too far away. And we have different people that we'll buy from and different purveyors. Mm-hmm. So we, we kind of scope that out, price it out, bid it out. And uh, and then we, we get that raw meat in. And then that meat is cured, which is pickling. You know, it's all the same process. It's salt and water. It's uh, the, the oldest trick in the book. It spends about three to four weeks in that process. And then it gets smoked with a dry rub applied to it, which is this wonderful you know, rich flavor um, and smell. Uh, it's salt, it's pepper, it's garlic, it's coriander. It's all these things that really hit your taste buds. And then, it, and when it's smoking, you, you get these wood chips blending into it. And that's what makes pastrami so unique. Traditionally, a pastrami is a navel cut of meat, though I've seen other people do horrific things um, <laughs> with other cuts of meat. But 
that would still be the same process as making a pastrami. Once it is smoked, this is all happening in our smokehouse. You bring it into the store and and you'll cook it up and and we'll do uh, we'll boil it for four to six hours and we'll steam it and it's uh, it's this really long process that breaks down the the meat even more, makes it juicy and tender, makes it so you, it falls apart, and you couldn't slice it on a machine. If you were tried to do that, it would literally crumble. So instead, you you hand, we hand carve everything and. The best part then happens after that in the, the eating. Would you say you spend more of your time with the actual production and the, the manufacturing of the meat or with the, with the sort of retail side of running the restaurant? I'm definitely more on the retail side of it. You know, I'll spend time in the, in the smokehouse, but I, there's definitely more attention to the customer and the end customer side of things, which is the store, which is shipping, and which is Brooklyn. And they're all very important, you know, in their own ways. And they all have their own headaches in their own ways. And they take up a lot of my time. When you say you're managing the retail side, I mean, is that just keeping the books? Is it talking to your work? Like what, what does that actually mean at Katz's? You know, it's about customer service. It, and customer service is a 24-7 thing. There's always an issue of some sort. And while there are people who can resolve it along the way, there are certainly some that can only be resolved by me. So a lot of my day is spent resolving those issues. So it could be a call from a customer who received a shipping order in Indiana or wherever, California, and they were not happy with a particular something, whatever it is, you know, insert problem here. And believe me, I've heard it all. And so it's calling that customer, seeing what we can do to make them happy to resolve it. And I'll make that call myself. I'm, you know, I like to step in if I need to and be there. If I'm asking my managers to step in and resolve things, then I should be willing to do the same and deal with angry customers as unpleasant as it is. What is the angriest customer you've personally had? Oh, I've been cursed out so many times. I can't even begin to tell you. How much time do we have? Um, Some are very valid. Yeah. You know, I, I ordered for this for my, my husband's 60th birthday party and I ordered all this food and this was going to be the food for it and it got delayed and everything's bad and you ruined my party. Oh my God, how do you even respond to that? Like you just apologize a hundred times because, you know, if it's something that I made a mistake on, I, we own up to it and we apologize and we'll do whatever we can. I've had issues with this corned beef was too salty and it's like, well, it is a salty beef. That's literally what it is. You know, fine. And then so the, it definitely ranges from very legitimate and things you feel very bad about and feels like things that are just soul crushing to things that are just really stupid. So it sounds like a lot of your time is is spent on the shipping business that Katz's does. Uh, it's the customers who are getting 60 pounds for their husband's, you know, birthday or whatnot. Right. I mean, it can be, but mm-hmm. it also could be issues inside the store. It mm-hmm. could be issues with um, this sandwich was too fatty. Okay, well, let's switch it out. Let's get you a sandwich you like. And that will personally come to you? Usually not, but I happen to be walking by or I'm talking to a customer and it's like I'm at the table. I'm like, hey, how is everything? It's like, well, since you asked. So, you know, I, that'll be my day too. But usually, I mean, everyone, staff, managers know how to resolve those types of issues. But hey, listen, if I'm if I'm in the store, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix it. So the bigger issue ones that will happen in the store are, are – more like incident-based 
where something happened. You know, someone believed something was stolen or something, you know, a, a fight broke out or a, I don't know. I mean, how we've often, seen it all. How often does a fight break out at Katz's? I know you guys do late night eating, obviously. Three in the morning on a Friday night is proportionally or disproportionately fighting time, if you will. Whereas like a 11 o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday, no one's really getting into a fist fight. When you have a fight at the restaurant, is that you know, people shouting at each other? Or are we talking uh, oh, corned no, beef and, and Rubens flying? Oh, no, I've seen fists fly. I've seen, uh, one time I saw brass knuckles come out. And the guy had, like broke the other guy's jaw. I was like, are you kidding me? Because you thought that guy cut you online? I mean, it's so, again, that guy was inebriated, if you will. So probably regrets that in the next morning. How often have you seen people try to reenact when Harry met Sally at your restaurant? Oh, my. Uh, yeah, uh, a lot. I would say once a week uh, someone comes in if, to to reenact it. Uh, for those not familiar, the the famous orgasm scene was at Katz's. I'll have what she's having. I'll have what she's having. That's uh, Rob Reiner's uh, mother, actually, who says that line. And Billy Crystal tells a great story about that, about sitting in front of Rob Reiner and and – because, like, he was not happy with the way Meg Ryan was doing it. He's like, look, this is how I'm going to do it. This is how I want you to do it. And he's this big guy sitting at the table, slams his hands down and is, like, roaring his head back and, like, freaking out about it and, like, really getting into it with his mother right next to him over there. And Billy, the way Billy Crystal tells it is just phenomenal and, you know. I, I, but people do this once a week. Oh, my God, yeah. It's it's phenomenal. And it, and it does – it's – Amazing. It, it seems to be one of the most universal thing. Guys, girls, young, old, uh, like I've seen 13-year-olds reenact. I'm like, you don't even get it. What are you <laughs> – like what? And then I've seen 80-year-olds and I'm like, good for you. That's uh, – hey, all right. Do your thing. Is this mostly the lunchtime crowd or the late night crowd that is? So it's always more interesting when it's the lunchtime crowd because the families that are sitting right next to them always feel very uncomfortable. And uh, I've seen it late night and then, you know, it's it gets this just huge applause. And, and we try to cheer when it's a good performance. But And I'm also not afraid to boo if it's a terrible performance though. So it's it's one of those things where if you're going to take that risk – you know, you better bring your A game. I, I, I want a good performance. <laughs> this is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, so this gets to something interesting, which is that you have all these different customer bases. You've got the tourists, you've got the locals, and then you've got the late night drunk crowd. Which are usually New Yorkers. Um, yeah, they're lo the local drunks. <laughs> local drunks, yeah. Um, I, I think it's all – that's one of the beautiful parts about Katz's. Uh, as a whole, is that you know it it is a tourist place, because but it's also a New York place, and and that's kind of a hard balance sometimes for a lot of restaurants or or businesses in New York. And we're very lucky on that front. Which are the hardest customers to manage of those three groups, though? The older New York crowd um, can sometimes 
be challenging. Um, They're the most likely to say the sandwich was too salty. Yeah, uh, they they. I like really need to tread lightly on this one. I feel like this is really you're really going to get me in trouble on this one. <laughs> yes, short answer. They are not afraid to let me know when I've done something wrong. How's that for an answer? That sounds that sounds uh, as you might expect. If they've been coming to the restaurant for forty years or so, they might have some opinions. Listen, they've earned that right to be very particular about food, and mm-hmm. and I'm my job is to. Make sure that food is right. Mm-hmm. What about tourists, though? Tourists usually are willing to learn, right? It's about it's about you know what is this food tradition, right? This is a I've heard of deli, and I've always heard of deli as being a New York thing. Well, what is New York deli? And so, like, there is that element of teach me, and we're teaching. I'm like, okay, just eat this sandwich. Don't ask any questions. This is how you're going to do it, and you're going to like it. And there is that, you know, some customers that love that and embrace that and some customers who want a little bit of New York attitude. You know, they've heard, hey, listen, I should be yelled at a little bit. And so, listen, I'm happy to oblige there. Then there's some tourists who think that their deli is better in whatever city they grew up in and they know better. And fine, no problem. Listen, this is what we do. This is the original style. Eh, Whatever makes you happy. And then the drunk crowd, the main risk is that there might be a fist fight at 3 a.m. with brass knuckles or <laughs> it's, it's not, that's not that's not an every Friday. Occurrence, yeah, that, it is not an every Friday occurrence. It's more they'll lose a ticket. Ah, And uh, for those that are not familiar, we we have this very antiquated ticket system where when you come in, you get a ticket and every all your food gets marked on there. And at the end, you pay it. And so. Uh, I think the late night crowd is more apt to lose that ticket. And if you lose the ticket, you have to pay how much again? $50 and we throw you in cat's jail. In cat's jail? Yeah. Is, that's, it, is uh, that an actual cage? Yeah, we'll or? turn you into a pastrami. It's <laughs> uh, a really awful B-horror movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the human pastrami. I think there was a, was a Woody Allen, Allen movie with that where he falls in the pickle vat. And, it sounds about right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's about what we're talking here. This kind of comes back to the technology thing we were discussing before that you guys are so analog that you keep track of the inventory with a pad and pen. The ticket system seems like it's a part of that. Do you guys actually even have a, a normal point of sale system? Or We do in Brooklyn. Um, okay, in, in Brooklyn. New, newest location there. It's, a, it's an outpost. It's a takeout only. And it's you know grab and go. It's meant for regulars who know what they want and they don't want to deal with the crowds or the lines and – to that end, it's been wildly successful in its first year. But in the store, no, it's it's very, very analog. Yeah, of course. Everything gets handwritten on those tickets. So have you ever considered trying to make Katz's more like a, I guess, it's a normal restaurant in terms of you know updating the system? Well, there's always this fine balance of nostalgia and tradition and modernization. And it's in everything that I do. You know, even changing the picture on the wall is like, uh, this push and pull. Yeah, we've certainly considered it. And to this point, there's been nothing that we found that can still walk that line appropriately, that can still feel traditional enough and nostalgic enough, but also give us that technological ease that, that we would love to have. So look, uh, who knows? I mean, maybe ask me that again in a couple of years. The Brooklyn location is your first expansion. 
ever. There's never been another Katz's location. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, we, we opened it last June. So we've had over a year now to work out all of the kinks. Uh, and uh, customers have been really happy so far. What made you decide to do that? Because, you know, the this I guess the stereotype about Delhi, right, is that like expansion is sort of the how great delis fail, right? It's like empires. They get too big and then <laughs> they kind of collapse. And, you know, suddenly the pastrami isn't quite right or, or something like that. So what made you guys decide to, to finally do it? Because we could do this one correctly. I have a, a truck that goes around every morning and it makes deliveries from the smokehouse to the store to the to Brooklyn and it does this loop and you know there are a lot of things that it's the exact same product and it's cooked the same way and it's you know the matzo balls are still made in the store and then delivered over and and you know everything's done fresh every day and it's done with the same people so I know I can do the do it consistently and not worry about quality on that front. And are you doing like spot checks on the pastrami out there? Or? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm there uh, a couple of times a week uh, checking on, on the quality of how things are coming out of, of the oven, even though it's the same turkey going in the oven in both places and it's the same pastrami going in the, the ovens. It's, you know, making sure that it's coming out of the ovens the same way and uh, that the cutters are cutting the right way and that, uh, you know, they're, they're getting the most out of every piece of meat. Uh, and making sure that customers are looking like they're happy when they're walking away. So you personally look and see how the cutters are doing their job? How do you – are you just like watching them slice pastrami and then looking for like extra bits on the t- – how do you do that? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean it's um, – the way that the knife goes through the the piece of meat can affect the quality of the sandwich. And as far as the bits go, you know – some of those bits are wonderful bits and really flavorful pieces. And, and so they, they make great little additions to the sandwich. Uh, you know, if you put it underneath uh, the slices, you get this nice pop of flavor here and there. So are they using that effectively? And then if there's a, there, there needs to be certain amounts of fat trimmed off of every piece. So are they trimming appropriately or are they trimming in excess or are they under trimming? And how are they taking care of that meat? Uh, how are they putting it back in the steam pot? You know, are they going to kill that meat then essentially so that no one else can use it? Are they going to put it back in a way that allows that meat to still stay nice and hot and fresh? Are you also watching that because that has to do with your margins? Like if they're if they're cutting too much meat away or if they're not if not cutting properly, there goes your profit. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's that um, any deli man or woman will tell you, you know, the. The profits are in the uh, in the pounds, and that's that's the truth. I mean, that's waste is a big deal in our industry. At every step along the way, uh, yields are everything. You know, to me, it seems like it would seem like managing the buy side would be the more difficult part, just because you have to worry about things like meat prices going up and down, right? And and dealing with farmers who can be difficult. Rather, whereas the cooking part is sort of. It's a process that happens each week. You kind of know what you're supposed to do. Uh, am, am I right there? Or? Well, certainly. You're, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of times my energy would be devoted towards price negotiation or something like that because it does change and because it's subject it to the commodities market. So in some ways, there it can be very challenging. And not only that, but balancing price versus quality and determining when people are trying to rip you off, uh, that's you know, 90% of business sometimes. So I think I, I, I definitely spend a lot of time on the buy side, but I try not to let it 
be all consuming. Does the fact that you guys use this very specific cut of meat, which is, again, it's not just a brisket, it's navel, which is this kind of, I guess, fattier part of the like the cow's chest. Does that make it harder to negotiate or to, to find supply? Or uh, So we are the largest individual buyer of navels on the market, which sounds really impressive, but the reality is... <laughs> It's irrelevant. I mean, you're talking about a meat market that does 560 million pounds of cattle every week. So we're a drop in the bucket. That said, we can leverage certain things. And and so it can be easier in some ways, but it also has its own unique set of challenges. Such as? Uh, Such as if a batch is bad. I mean, you you know, if if a particular uh, meat is no good, like... I, I'm getting meat delivered in these giant bins that have thousands of pounds of meat in it. And it's like, well, what do you do with it, right? I, I mean, and and there's certainly been instances like that where you're like, I, I can't accept this delivery, which creates a massive headache. So you've gotten just a, a truckload of rotten meat, essentially. When, I guess when that truck comes in, what do you even – how do you go about inspecting that? Well, there are – as you're loading them into the warehouse, there are, there are massive – pallet-sized containers of meat, you open it, you, know, you look at it. And if you have to cut a piece open, you cut a piece open. I mean, I think once you work with meat every day, you know when something's wrong. I mean, it'd be no different than if you notice that a, a mic is wrong or, or, you know, in here, whoever you are, whatever you do, you know when something's off. And it's the same thing. You know when there's something wrong about meat. You know when a fridge is off by a degree. You know when the... There's too much salt in in a dish, and and so I I think it's no different in manufacturing, you know, in in pastrami world. <laughs> <laughs> How often does that happen? Not often. I mean, it's it's that's a very rare occurrence. I mean, the, this is a pretty well regulated and monitored market we're talking about here, but things happen. It's more frequent that there's minor details that are off. Like a, it's just not quite the right fat content. Uh, the distribution of the fat's not quite right. There's a little too much cut off the top or not enough, you know, cut off. And, and so it's more of those little minor things. How do you check for something like fat content in thousands of pounds of meat being delivered on pallets? You take a sample of five or six and kind of assume the rest of that is going to be similar. You just cut them open and take a look and yeah. say, here's the marbling. And- yeah, exactly. You know, fat caps too much, too little. It's, uh, you know, a little off the side. and It's like a haircut. <laughs> so what is the biggest disaster you've ever had at Katz's? Well, you know, there's there's been a couple over the years, hurricanes and blackouts and things like that. But one that comes to mind is a, a water main in front of the store burst when they were doing some construction uh, on the street and it flooded our basement. Uh, Filled the basement with three feet of water and mud, which essentially meant that we had to throw every single thing that we had in the basement downstairs, had to rip out all the fridges, had to redo all the floors, had to redo all the piping. So that was not fun. It took a lot of months and a lot of headaches. And and operationally, it was a huge challenge. Um, In many ways, actually, that was, I think, the proof to my father and my uncle that I was capable of running it on my own. It was one of those sort of defining moments for me being able to deal with the crisis during the crisis and being able to sort of manage the chaos 
after, immediately after, but then also ongoing for the next six months. And in his eyes and, and both their eyes, rather, they're, I think that was a pretty pivotal, pivotal moment. Wow. Couldn't say that word there. Really... During that time, did you feel like the deli was any kind of financial peril or? I think uh, from a financial standpoint, you know, I've adopted the same philosophy as my family and which is be super conservative with it. You know, make sure you have enough in the bank to cover emergencies because emergencies happen. Things happen all the time and, and you don't know when that next disaster is going to happen or when business is not going to be good. And and so err on the side of caution. People often talk about the high price of a pastrami sandwich. It's how much these days? Twenty one forty five. It's yes. Um, we do get some people who don't um, understand why it could possibly be that much, but I do have a lot of customers who understand where that pricing comes from. So, what goes into the price of pastrami? Well, I mean, the entire process we talked about is uh, not a cheap process in and of itself. But beyond that, I mean, look in the supermarket and look at how much your your chopped meat went up in pricing. And chopped meat is horrible quality, if we're being honest. I mean, it's like everything, including the moo. So what do you think a good quality product is going to cost? And and so a lot of customers understand that. I mean, you're also getting three quarters of a pound of meat on a sandwich. That's, that's a pretty hefty sandwich. I mean, that's a it's, it's more than a meal sometimes. So I, I think there is value in that to a lot of customers. And that's why we still have customers today. Have you ever seriously talked about shrinking the size of a Katz's sandwich. You know, we've talked about it. I don't think we've ever talked about it seriously. I mean, part of the charm of Katz's are the overstuffed sandwiches. And you can buy a half sandwich too, I suppose. Right. So we, we, we to counter that, rather than say smaller sandwiches, we would say, okay, do a half sandwich with a soup or a salad or something so, so that it's not as heavy of a meal. How many customers would you say actually finish the whole thing? Is there any way to tell that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of customers get really close and the ones that finish fall in two categories. One is like full and very happy and content. And like the other camp is just a little too full and like a little too just want to go to sleep. I guess I, I'm asking because I'm wondering if there's any way to tell how much surplus meat you end up serving. Like, can you tell from your scraps, for instance, how much how much meat is actually getting left on the plate? Yeah, I mean, a lot of customers take it to go, to be honest. So, Fair enough. Um, it's always tricky when there's when you're at that three quarter of a sandwich stage, right? You you've gone into that second half of the sandwich and you're there, and then you realize your eyes were bigger than your your stomach. So. That's where the leftovers happen, and, and there's certainly some excess there, which um, uh, unfortunately there isn't a lot you can do from a food waste perspective or from a feeding the homeless perspective. So that that is, you know, it hurts your heart a little bit. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, we, it, what we do is at the end of the night, though, any food that would otherwise go to waste, that food will will give to nearby shelters. What like what kind of food are you delivering? Mostly soups. Um, soups. Yeah, things that are on the grill, so hot dogs and knobwurst and knishes and you know things that you can't necessarily cool down or recook or anything like you know pastrami is a very mal. It's, it's a it's a great piece of meat. You can cool it down and then reheat it, and it's exactly the same as it was. Whereas a knish, once it's on the grill, nah, that's about it. A laka, it's already fried. 
I mean, there's nothing you could do there. I think last year we we donated something like twelve thousand pounds of food to uh, the nearby shelter. And we've we've talked before, and you, you've told me that a a big part of your margins come actually from things like French fries, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, potatoes are so are a restaurant's best friend. So is that like the you if you, if a customer is going to be profitable for you guys, do you really need them essentially to come in and? You're hoping that they'll come in and order a bunch of sides, or or what makes like, <laughs> your yeah. your ideal your ideal customer? I'll what take is there? Three pounds of coleslaw, bring it in. Um, because at the at the pastrami, you know, there's only so much margin you can tack on, I guess. But with the the other stuff, so I mean, what is your ideal customer buying? You know, soups are great, um, lakas are great, French fries are great, knishes are great. So so any of those, I, I'm always. I want to go hug those customers, but you know the flip side is objectively they're really good. I mean these these it's not like I'm just like here eat this it's garbage like this is really what's good, but this is just to, for me to make money. No, these are are items that customers want and crave. I mean it's traditional cooking and and things from grandma's you know home that you maybe you can't get Bubby's cooking anymore and and so um, or maybe you know. I, Look, what I say is I my goal is to be the second best you ever had. The first being your relative that made it that first time for you. So, um, you know, it's it's objectively amazing lakas and matzo ball soup. And, and yeah, I can make a little money on that. You also keep a lot of things on the menu like tongue. What is the economics of, of, of keeping that around at the restaurant? I imagine not a lot of people are actually ordering it. I mean, it. I still sell about 300 pounds a week of tongue. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I like tongue. I didn't realize there were that many people who did. It's one of my favorite things that we have, a, yeah. a nice center cut. I think it's better than the tip. Uh, the, you know, it's a little fattier, a little more flavor. I think a little, that with like a like a little smear of chopped liver on top of it is a home run. But even chopped liver is a bit of a, I guess, non-traditional order, shall we say? Though I – listen, to me, chopped liver is – I would put our chopped liver against just about anyone. When you say non-traditional, you mean just it's not what most people are ordering or? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh, no, no. It's very traditional. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, <laughs> you don't get more traditional. No, no, no. I just meant in, in the sense that yeah. not a lot of people are ordering it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So is that is that a dish that's kind of trailing off, would you say, at the you know, generationally? Or? Yes and no. I think the steadfast people still keep it alive and keep it going. How many pounds are you selling? Of the chopped liver, I would say about, uh, let's see, uh, about 100 some odd pounds, 150 pounds. So it's it's way less. But then again, it's also how much chopped liver can you eat? Like you're not getting pounds and pounds of chopped liver. You know? I, I don't know about you. But <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> Had I known, I would have brought yeah, some chopped right, liver. Yeah, right? yeah, no, this is, but you're selling more of the tongue. It's interesting. We are, we're, we're selling more tongue than we are chopped liver, um, though both are, you know, we're talking about 30,000 pounds of meat a week. You know, a couple hundred isn't that much. Well, so that that's why I'm sort of asking is this is it seems like these are you keep. Is it really efficient to have that stuff on the menu? I mean, it seems like well, it's still a couple hundred pounds. I okay, mean, don't fair. get me wrong. It's yeah. still, um, you know, if we're talking five pounds a week, then we could start saying, does this make sense? And that's essentially what happened with uh, uh, stuffed cabbage, for example, where it was it, it just sort of has trailed for many, many months and it kept going down and kept going down. And finally, it just got to a point where it wasn't worth it. We weren't getting enough customers who wanted stuffed cabbage as much as I love it. Um, and I think it's a wonderful menu item. 
it wasn't selling. How often do things come off the menu? Uh, once a decade or so. And when did stuffed cabbage meet its end? Uh, that was this decade's loss. So we're good till 2020. What is your personal ideal Katz's order? I'm a pastrami kind of guy. I love a pastrami sandwich. Uh, Dr. Brown's black cherry soda, some full sour pickles. I like full sour over half sour, though I respect both choices. I just think you're wrong. Uh, Lakas and a soup. If I can, like, it depends how hungry we're talking here. And the reality is, I if if we're talking ideal, you should come with a friend and you should split a sandwich and get a bunch of the other sides. All right. Um, I've had you in here for a bit. Um, time is it? Oh yeah. And <laughs> Did you know it's National Hot Dog Day? Is it really? Is that true? What? These are the texts I get. Yeah, right. It's National Hot Dog Day. Yeah. Um, it's been a lot of fun talking. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Working. This is actually our last show of the season. We're going to be off the air for four weeks, working on new episodes. But in the meantime, if you enjoyed what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And you can always email us at workingatslate.com. We're, of course, open to your ideas and suggestions, even if it's something simple like uh, telling me to stop mispronouncing LaCroix. Apparently, I was doing that a few episodes back. I kept saying LaCroix. It's LaCroix. I apologize deeply to any Midwesterners who were offended. The show is produced by Jessamine Molly. And as always, a special thank you to Justin D. Wright for our ad music. Join us again next season. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.